I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was initially broadcast back in 2009. Enjoy. And we welcome you to the Tuesday morning show on WGTD, Kenosha, Racine, Elkhorn, and Lake Geneva, NPR News and classical music on your gateway to public radio. I'm Gregory Berg. It's always a happy day for me when we can be talking about uh, something related to the U.S. presidency and some of our uh, most important presidents. And we will do that today with uh, someone who is back on the morning show for her second visit, uh, Dr. Sandra Motes, assistant professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Parkside. Professor Motes first joined us on the morning show in response to uh, an author interview which uh, I had aired uh, about a book concerning our fifth president, uh, James Monroe. And this author, uh, his last name Unger, I don't remember his first name, uh, did everything but... uh, uh, propose uh, Monroe for uh, sainthood, and, uh, and Professor Motes uh, took exception to some of what had been uh, said in that book. Actually, even ahead of that interview airing, she had read something about it and written a piece for the L.A. Times, uh, a, a, a thoughtful response to some of what Mr. Unger had written about James Monroe. And that prompted uh, my invitation uh, to uh, her to come on to the morning show and talk a little further about her reservations about Mr. Unger's work on James Monroe. And uh, it was a very, very fun and interesting conversation. And we're about to have our second today as we talk now about a book which uh, Professor Motes herself has written called Celebrating the Republic, Presidential Ceremony and Popular Sovereignty from Washington to Monroe. In this book, Professor Motes Uh, examines, in a sense, the ceremonial and symbolic life of our first five presidents, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, and uh, talks about some of the choices which each of them made and the importance which was attached to those choices. And uh, that plays out against a backdrop of a rather divided America in which there were some Americans and certainly some politicians who believed in one kind of government while others believed in another. And it had a whole lot to do with where power was going to be centered and our nation's ceremonies and rituals and symbols surrounding our chief executive would have a lot to do with how people would view the president and his role in our government. That's really the the topic of this book, which, uh, has been painstakingly researched, and uh, the, this book is handsomely uh, 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 enhanced with uh, some, some very interesting illustrations as well. And I'm really delighted for this opportunity to uh, speak with Professor Motes about her book, again called Celebrating the Republic, Presidential Ceremony and Popular Sovereignty from Washington to Monroe. Uh, Professor Sandra Motes, we welcome you back to the program. Thanks for having me, Greg. Good to have you here. Uh, one of the things I, I uh, especially enjoyed was uh, apparently something in the acknowledgments of this book in which uh, you explain how this book maybe is going to help your parents understand just exactly who you are and what you've been doing all these years. Just uh, tell us the story behind that uh, moment in your acknowledgments. Um, I just, I, both my parents are scientists. My father is a, is a chemist. My mother's a biologist. And they both have PhDs. And they saw me going through graduate school, which is where this book originally um, came from. And I think they always wondered what I was up to. I was always, I, I grew up in the Maryland area, and I used to come and stay with them and go work at the Library of Congress and go to various historical libraries. And I think 
they just thought, what what does she do? Um, and what is she working on? And what is she reading? And they, they were used to things that were in the laboratory. And, and you know, science dissertations tend to be um, much briefer. They tend to be more based on experiments and things. And so in my acknowledgments, I wrote, in, in case they were ever wondering what their historian daughter was up to, this is <laughs> this is the end result. This is, this, is, this is what I was up to all those years. So. And, of course, I suppose part of it is that there never really is much of an end result in your kind of work. I mean, the, there's, there's always another stone to... Uh, uh, turnover and uh, more information to sift through. Absolutely, and and especially too. I mean, the book has just come out, but you know, certainly once the re- more more reviews and more scholarly reviews start coming in, there'll be questions about this and why didn't you do more of that and things like that. So uh, definitely, mm-hmm. or or when are you going to talk about the next five presidents? That's the ne- you know wow. keep keep going with it. So. Say a word, if you would, about this period in our country's history. Uh, it, it is it is of particular interest to you. Uh, explain why you find it to be especially fascinating, and and why probably all of us should uh, should pay more attention to these early years of our country. Well, and this is something um, I deal with with my students. Um, we're used to our, our constitution having been around for about two hundred and twenty years. Um, and I think it's important in our early decades that this was considered very risky. Uh, Republican government or representative government hadn't been tried in modern times. The earliest models were from um, ancient a- Athens and Rome, and both of those uh, turned eventually into sort of more uh, what we think of as kind of like dictators or, or emperors. Um, and so this was a very risky, risky experiment. Um, and also this idea in representative government, that you put the government's authority in the hands of the people rather than in the hands of kings or in the hands of the church or the or uh, some divine authority. And so these are very, very risky um, ex- experiments going on. And then the question becomes, how do you interpret this in practice? We don't want a king. We don't want a monarchy. We want a government that's accountable to the people but how do you do this in practice? And keeping in mind that the most familiar kind of government at the time was monarchy, and people even in the colonies 3,000 miles away had celebrated the king's birthday and marked his passing and things like that. How were we going to launch this risky experiment in Republican government and not end up with a monarch and not end up with a king? And many people would have been perfectly comfortable with George Washington being King George Washington. Um, And he was very careful to avoid anything that looked like that. Um, But again, it was a very, very risky time. And as you said in your introduction, people had different interpretations of how this should work, how much ceremony, how much pomp should you attach to it, how how little should you attach to it. Uh, Somebody like Thomas Jefferson would say any kind of ceremony is inappropriate in Republican government. By Republican government's very nature, it should be simple and unadorned and plain. Where somebody like Washington is saying, well, we need to get people's attention here. We've, We've just written this new constitution. If the people are truly in charge of the new government, how do how do we how do we make that connection? How do we how do we produce that link between the government and the people? And so what he does is engage in a lot of ceremonies, like tours and uh, receptions and things like that, to really activate that relationship. Jefferson, of course, is our third president. He has the luxury that this thing's already been up and running for twelve years by the time he comes in. And what he does is he just strips all of that bare. Um, and probably the most famous example, he lived in a boarding house on Capitol Hill. 
Hill, he walks from his boarding house to the U.S. Capitol to be inaugurated. Um, there is a procession, but he's not part of it. The the city provides him a procession. There's a military escort. But he just, he's kind of like, if you guys want to follow me, that's fine. <laughs> but I'm just taking a little stroll. He goes, gets inaugurated, goes back to his boarding house and has dinner with the other residents. Mm. So he goes out of his way to just strip strip the inaugurational the inauguration ceremony bare now if i understand correctly the the big divide in the country at that time and i think you've been kind of uh, hinting at this is that some people thought this new government needed to have a very strong chief executive mm-hmm. with lots of power residing with them them and and then there were others who were very leery of that and they wanted much more authority and power to rest in each state. And so that's the, and, and, and I, so if I understand correctly, this difference in the symbols and ceremony that should surround the president really spring out of that divide over how this government should function and how central the president should be. Absolutely. And I think something that I try to stress in the book um, is that ceremony matters. Ceremony has substance. And that when George Washington is touring and riding around on a white horse and things like that, he's presenting a certain understanding of what the executive should be. Um, He wants a strong, top-down executive, uh, a much more kind of hierarchical, where the, the, the national government is somewhat on top of the states, where somebody like Jefferson would say, no, 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 no. By its very nature, Republican government uh, stems from the legislative branch, not the executive. And that secondly, it should be a, a kind of a co, co-sharing relationship between state state power and federal power. Mm. It's so interesting. Uh, this is probably one of the b- biggest things I learned in, in reading your book, because I think what we hear so much of, and of course it's true, is... But you've also already said in this interview that George Washington did not want to be king, even though probably a lot of Americans would have been happy to have him as king. That would have been probably the most, for not, not everybody, but certainly for a lot of Americans, that would have been the most soothing, comforting thought was to install him as king and have him rule. Uh, and, and he, of course, did not want to be that. But actually, on the scale of ceremony, George Washington actually was towards the end in which he would have been king. I mean, a, right, a lot right. of how he treated ceremony was, in a sense, to to give himself, or more importantly, the office, mm-hmm. that kind of prominence. Absolutely. And he it's it's funny because he, he, he adopts a lot of monarch, monarchical practices. So he certainly recognizes their resonance and their familiarity, but yet he, he also goes out of his way to make sure He's not the star. It's the it's the government. Even though, of course, he he's a celebrity in and of himself, and it, it, you know George Washington coming to town is going to be a big deal. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because he does. You know, it's what 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 which poison do you choose? Je- <laughs> Washington chooses the monarchical rituals. What Jefferson chooses, which is equally risky, is to put a lot of emphasis on political parties and to build a party, a political party alternative to what is the Federalist, which is Washington and Adams. And so it's sort of like the the thing that could strengthen Republican government could also be the thing that that destroys it. So too much ceremony could destroy it, but too much partisan factions, too much political parties that could destroy it as well. But you you need something that's going to sort of activate it or bring it to life. Mm. And yeah, uh, we're speaking with Dr. Sandra Motz. We're talking about her book, Celebrating the Republic: Presidential Ceremony and Popular Sovereignty from Washington to Monroe. I was struck by how 
in some of the quotes you give us of George Washington of how aware he was of the importance of so many of these decisions. And I don't think everybody would be. I mean, I think many times new ventures begin and you're making all kinds of tremendously important decisions that will carry on and have a legacy and you don't know that or you don't Mm -hmm. realize that fully. And he seems to have really fully understood uh, how important every decision he was making, in fact, was. And and, uh, you titled your introduction, Untrodden Ground, a wonderful uh, line from Washington where he writes to someone, I walk on untrodden ground. There is scarcely any action whose motives may not be subject to a double interpretation. There is scarcely any part of my conduct which may not hereafter be drawn into precedent. Uh, So, I mean, he's very, very aware that these choices he makes matter a great deal, not just for the moment, as important as that is, but for how they will see, uh, be seen and how they will influence the decisions that come after. Absolutely. And I think, you know, he's a big, big personality by the time he becomes president. It's it's a foregone conclusion he'll be elected. He has basically been holding what you would call the United States together, the 13 states together since becoming the, 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 the general of the Cottonelle Army. I mean, he's a, he's a rock star. He is a rock star in 1789, and he could really take advantage of the situation. And you have to admire his caution and his restraint and his thoughtfulness. And I think Washington is not somebody we think of as a great intellectual in the same way of like Thomas Jefferson or even John Adams or Madison. But he's incredibly thoughtful about this and, and careful and cautious. He He recognizes the enormous responsibility he bears. And he also recognizes that he could really mess this up or he could do a really great job at this. And he takes it very seriously. And I, I have to say, in, in researching and writing this book, Washington kind of becomes, the, to me, is the hero of the story because he really does deserve the credit because there there were so many ways this, you know, I think one of the classic examples is why why didn't we end up with a Napoleon? And you you can see in a lot of the decisions Washington makes, he he chooses to make it about the government, about the Constitution, um, whereas Napoleon Bonaparte chose to make it about Napoleon Bonaparte. Mm. And I think they're, 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 I think you can just see some very different choices that were made. Mm. And he pretty much made all the right ones. <laughs> right, right. Um, you tell us about something that Washington did two weeks into his presidency, which certainly speaks of his. Uh, thoughtfulness Mm -hmm. and the care with which he made these decisions. Tell our listeners about this questionnaire that he circulated uh, concerning presidential conduct and accessibility. Okay. Yeah, this is really important. First and foremost, um, he's inaugurated on April 30th, um, 1789. What's interesting is Washington just lets himself be sort of the vehicle or the, the person at the inauguration because he's not president yet. So he's not in any position to be making decisions, making rulings, making... He's not president yet. He's just president-elect. So he didn't plan the inauguration? Not at all. It's it's Congress. Congress is largely planning the first inauguration, particularly John Adams as vice president. And then secondly, he, there's a famous pre-inaugural tour as he journeys from Mount Vernon to New York. He just allows himself to be sort of the recipient of all of this. So, And that's why the, the first chapter of the book is called Congress and the People uh, Plan an Inauguration. Washington's not president yet. He doesn't have the authority. As soon as he does become president, about a couple of weeks into his presidency, he sends out a questionnaire or what he calls a query. And he sends it to all of the prominent people, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, uh, John Jay, James Madison. 
and writes a 10, 10, 9 or 10 question questionnaire and says, how should the president conduct himself? How accessible should he be? When should he have parties? Should he have parties? Should he accept private invitations? Should he appear in public? Uh, should he have basically what we professors call office hours, visiting hours, where people could come in and say, I'm having trouble getting my pension check or whatever? Um, what what degree? And, and he even says at the, at the outset of this query, how do I balance accessibility on one hand with being a little too accessible and sort of degrading the quality of the office. And the interesting thing is, and I, I, again, take this as a sign of his commitment to Republican ideas, because what he turns this into is a consultative process. It's 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 public. It's written record. He's he's getting feedback. He's getting comments, and people like Adams and and Hamilton are just chomping at the bit to share their <laughs> their suggestions with him, which is also really smart, shrewd on his part, to get this out of their system. They're going to tell him anyway what they think he should do, and I think it's very important that he he establishes almost like a. It's it's obviously not legislative because it's not legal, but certainly. Um, it parallels. It parallels that kind of process. It's it's in writing. It's public. It's clear. He's taking a lot of feedback, and then after he gets everybody's comments, he then issues his own rules of how this is going to work. Hmm. I think it's amazing. But I mean, you've explained why he did it this way, but it's still amazing to me that it's two weeks into his presidency and he circulates this thing saying, "Now, how should we do this?" I mean, I mean, in in a sense. You know, first of all, it, it shows some courage on his part because mm-hmm. it, it, it in some ways, as we read that, you could almost interpret it as, I don't know what to do now. I mean, right. I'm the president. And, and and the other thing is, you know, he's he's already president. I mean, it's it's all begun and he's still sort of sorting this out. And yet, as you said, he was reticent to plunge in un- until, in fact, he was president. Although, on the other hand, you could read it as he's got this thing in his hip pocket and he's ready mm. to go. Um, and that he, as much as he's very coy about, well, I'm not president yet and we'll have to see what the Electoral College says and I'm not president, so it's not for me to comment yet. He, he's raring to go. Mm. You know, it would, be, it would be like today, you know, somebody having a fully, fully fleshed out health care plan. It's like, oh, OK, yeah. I guess you were a little more ready for this <laughs> yeah, than, right than, you, than you let on. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's interesting that he, he was ready and he, mm. he, he he's posing these as questions. But clearly these are his ideas of what he thinks having they called them levies, but they they'd be what we would call kind of cocktail receptions. Mm. Um, he's he's got his own ideas in mind. So basically the nine are they're questions, but they're really like this is kind of what I'm thinking of. What do you guys think? Mm. One of the things I find especially interesting is the first response he got uh, just a few days later, the 2nd of May, from Robert Livingston. And uh, I want to um, read as you uh, discuss this. You say, um, despite the access to Washington that Livingston himself enjoyed, he recommended that the new president adopt a detached and almost invisible public role in order to promote and maintain the dignity of the office. Livingston wrote that, the utmost distance should be maintained by the president and that he should avoid all social and free intercourse with the people. He also encouraged Washington to maintain more reserve and distance than he had in the Continental Army in order to exalt the government's principles. Livingston then proceeded to reject Washington's specific proposals, writing that the president should accept on some great festival, give no formal dinners, that he should accept no formal invitation, that he should return no visits. I mean, it's really interesting to, I mean, 
I read that and history comes alive. I mean, some it's like that. That's what this person really believed with all their heart about how this new president should conduct himself. And, of course, Washington didn't do it that way. No, not at all. And I think the funny thing, too, is that, you know, Jefferson is so critical of Washington for being too monarchical and and too formal and too pompous and all that. But then you read these responses from people like Livingston and John Jay and Hamilton and Adams, and and Washington is Washington's proposal and his actual plan is much more accessible than even what Adams and Hamilton come up with because both Adams and Hamilton Adams even suggests well maybe I can't I think it's Adams even suggests maybe you should just send somebody into you know the streets of the Capitol and see what people are thinking you know so it, 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 and they're actually suggesting sort of the creation of almost like a court intrigue you know like you have you would have in monarchical circles and Washington wisely avoids that as well and obviously these are men who would be in the inner circle so they don't have to worry mm. um, so it's it's very funny I mean as much as Washington gets criticized for being too monarchical. He's actually, of this whole group, with the exception of Madison, the most accessible and, and wants to have the most contact with the public and seems to get republicanism in a sense that these other men don't. Hmm. Of course, one of the things that happens also in the midst of all this is a relocation of, of our capital, mm-hmm. which, of course, presents some interesting challenges and, and uh, possibilities as well. Right. Right. That's right. Um, the the original capital uh, is temporary. It's in New York City. It's the first two years. Then it relocates to Philadelphia. And had there not been some timely intervention by Jefferson and Madison, it might have stayed in Philadelphia permanently. And they are able to successfully negotiate a compromise with Hamilton. And it ends up, obviously, in its present-day location. And I, part of what happens, of course, is that Washington, a slave owner, runs into the gradual emancipation laws that Pennsylvania has and has to sh- send some of his slaves back to Mount Vernon because if they're in Pennsylvania for a certain amount of time, they're eligible for uh, emancipation. And a couple of them actually know that and apply for it. And Washington writes to his personal secretary and says, these guys have to go back to Mount Vernon. Otherwise, they're going to qualify for being freed. Mm. So it, you see a side of, of Washington and, you know, that our four of our uh, original five presidents were slave owners, and this is a con- you know, something that they're dealing with as well. I thought a fascinating moment in this period where we are temporarily, the government is temporarily housed in Philadelphia, was this matter of where Washington should live. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he ultimately ends up living in uh, some sort of mansion, I think owned by a Robert Morris. Am That's I remember, right. Am I reading mm-hmm. that right? And apparently um, there were some kind of controversy emerges about that he doesn't like this house or something or other, and uh, which isn't true, but uh, somehow this gets reported and written about. And uh, and apparently this just really, really angered Washington. And you, you give us this excerpt from a letter he writes saying, I have no scruple in declaring to those gentlemen or any others that no one has a right to publish sentiments as mine that were never uttered or conceived by me. It almost feels like the first like tabloid exploitive, you know, writing or something where you know you're putting words in somebody's mouth and we think of that sometimes as a very 
contemporary blight on society, but you know, there it is happening to George Washington back in 1790. Absolutely. And you and you also get the sense of all the all of the excitement swirling around him and what does he want and will we make him happy? Does he like it? You know, and renovating I, this mansion re- for instance, renovate. yeah. Yeah, and also just the, the you know, the fact that people in Philadelphia are now very excited, the the president's going to be in their capital, their city now and you, you get the, all this excitement and then all this second guessing and hubbub and and I think something else I really like about that letter is that Washington is such a controlled and restrained person, and to hear that's that's him exploding. That's <laughs> that's what that's what it sounds like when George Washington loses his temper, and it doesn't happen very often. And I that's partly why I included that because you see that side of him, and that secondly to see the level of detail he's involved in. We tend to think of things like housing and purchasing China and things like that, the concern of the first lady and the and domestic concerns. And at this time, it wasn't. Um, upper class uh, gentlemen, this is something they got involved in. And because Washington sees all of this, to go back to the original quote about precedence and what he will do matters, he was very actively involved in all those kind of dis- decisions and details. Mm, as much or more so than Martha. Ab- uh, absolutely. Mm. And she's actually, I mean, I think we think of, um, she, w- she didn't actually attend his first inauguration. She comes up later. Once he feels like things are sort of settled in New York, he says, now you know, now you can come up. Hmm. Um, the kind of the traditional role of the first lady with the inaugural ball and all of that doesn't happen until Dolly Madison. Hmm. So. One of the, uh, of course, important things that you talk about at some length is the extraordinary tour which George Washington undertakes. And this is something which James Monroe himself will undertake during his uh, tenure as our fifth president. Um, what is it that most prompted Washington to do this? I I think he really believes um, in this idea that you have to put the people in touch with their government and that it's fine if you're in New York City or you're in Philadelphia, you're going to see the president, you're going to have exposure to the government. But I think he believes that for this government to work and to be successful and effective, but also have its authority respected, he needs to sort of bring the government to the people um, and and give the people an opportunity, the, the citizens, an opportunity to interact with it, to, to know that you guys are used to local and state authority, and that's fine, but there's also this national government. And in part, this national government's not going to work if you guys don't engage with it. it, it mm-hmm. If popular sovereignty is going to work, the people have to be involved. But secondly, um, just a reminder that there is now a national government, and you know it's it's kind of a carrot and stick. On one hand, there are great benefits to all of you from this national government, but on the other hand, you may get sent a tax bill, you may have to join the army or navy or something. Um, there's there's also a trade off, and you, you guys have been used to a very kind of loosey goosey national government. And I think he wants to sort of not only establish its authority, but also establish the authority that the citizens bring mm-hmm. it. Speaking of authority, you tell us about a very dicey moment in this tour that he takes to the north, uh, which occurs in Massachusetts, involving um, Massachusetts Governor John Hancock. Is mm-hmm. that the John Hancock? The John with the big, with the, with the big signature. signature. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just making sure. And um, there is this really interesting moment that happens that, and 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 evidently Washington treated it as such, as this is a moment where what I do 
the the choice I make right now really matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Tell our listeners about that. Yeah, he, he he's traveling around the New England states. So he's in Massachusetts, uh, Connecticut, and New Hampshire. And, and keep in mind, Vermont's not a state yet, and Rhode Island hasn't ratified the Constitution. So he avoids those two and just goes to the three that have ratified the Constitution. Well, he goes to Boston, and it's customary that you know officials will greet him as president. And John Hancock suddenly comes down with some kind of cold or something and can't can't come and see the president. And basically what emerges here is a power struggle. Hancock's sort of saying, you come and see me. And Washington's like, no, you come and see me. And essentially what seems like fairly trivial is what's more important here, the national government or the state government? And eventually what happens is Washington wins. He basically calls Hancock's bluff and they bring Hancock in on basically like a, a, a bed, like a stretcher, all bandage up um, <laughs> to greet to greet Washington. And the point is the, you know, you know, there is a new show in town. It is called the national government, and people in the states need to respect it mm. and respect its authority. Wow. It's an amazing tour, and, of course, he's greeted with delirium just mm-hmm. about wherever he goes. And um, the, you, you tell us that the, that the one trip up north was relatively easy and mm-hmm. straightforward. The The trip down south was a longer one, a little more difficult, partly because Washington had never traveled farther south than northern North Carolina. I mean, it's so interesting to think about Washington going to some of these places for the very, very first time. You say something else that I think is interesting, Down, I guess down south rather than up north. Without newspaper coverage tracking the president's progress, many communities did not realize Washington was expected until he arrived, <laughs> unlike what you what you describe in the tour to the north, where right. I mean, I mean, these cities uh, spare no expense in the lavishness they uh, heap upon the president. Right. No, absolutely. And it's funny. Even thirty years later, when Monroe takes his own tour, um, he disappears for two weeks. He goes out. Uh, Monroe is traveling from basically uh, Atlanta, Georgia, or, or Savannah, Georgia across the basically the wilderness, the western part of Georgia, into Alabama. <laughs> what, what was wilderness. What yeah. was wilderness yeah. at the time. He and a couple of his aides, and they disappear for two weeks. They are not heard from at all until they reach, uh, I think it's Huntsville, Alabama. And so even 30 years later when Monroe tours, there's it's just, you know, the, the South is built around farms and plantations. You have small towns and communities, but you just don't have the newspapers and the infrastructure that, that we take for granted in the North. The other thing is cities are spread out much farther apart, and you just don't have the roadways. You don't have the inns and hotels and things like that. The other funny thing that happens is Washington is insistent that he stay in public accommodations. So he stays at inns or taverns or and, and pays his way. And he accidentally ends up at a private home in the, in the South. He thinks it's an inn, and he goes to settle his bill the next morning <laughs> and finds out he was actually staying at someone's private home. <laughs> and he's just he's just mortified. But it, it, again, it's just you don't have the infrastructure that you have in the North. And even back then, staying in a uh, in an inn or tavern in a in the North was a dubious thing. You might have to share the bed. It may have, it was probably flea infested. So it's not any great shakes in the North. But at least they had things like that. Mm. Um, you tell us that actually, for as popular as Washington was, uh, there is, through the course of his presidency, more and more partisan criticism of him, and particularly around this whole notion of how s- strong is he, how much authority does he have, is he really too monarchical in his approach? And uh, you, you you point out that it's so interesting that the, the practices which Washington 
ended up ad- ad- adopting as chief executive to to cement the importance of the government and of the chief executive you call these also his political achilles heel right. i mean this was a this was a chink in the armor where the uh, unassailable washington could be and was in fact really roundly criticized by some yeah and it's 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 that monarchical thing that's the thing he can never really shake and a lot of this comes out of um jefferson and madison don't like hamilton and they don't like hamilton's financial plan and they don't like hamilton's vision for the national government and so that becomes kind of their initial initial way of attacking their federalist opponents and then along that line of attack eventually they 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 pull Washington down as well because they see the connection between a strong national government, these monarchical practices, things like that. So Washington's not the first guy who's attacked by the political opponents, but he's sort of like the last. And and the thing that leaves him most vulnerable are are these monarchical rituals. And he even says in his second term, he said all of this I did for a Republican government. I didn't do it for myself. And, you know, at that point, it, it doesn't matter. Mm. I love how you say at one point, superficially, Washington's tours resembled a monarchical pro- progress, but more than an ocean separated these ceremonial forms. I mean, mm-hmm. in some outward ways, it probably did look like that to some. Right. But in fact, what it was all about, and even in some of the specifics, he really was endeavoring to make this not about... M- monarchical uh, aspirations on his part. Absolutely. And, and it, you know, and I go on to say that, you know, in a monarchical progress, Queen Elizabeth I would probably be the, which this was her, her specialty. I mean, when her subjects would come to greet her, they would, they would be kneeling, they would be bowing, they would be, you know, uh, they would be honoring her. Whereas the, the exchange between Washington and the people, uh, the American people would be more of an exchange of equals. Also, Washington wanted to make sure it was Republican government that was the star attraction, not him, even though, again, he had this sort of rock star persona, this larger than life persona. But again, yeah, the very, you know, subtle things. Of course, the uh, Jefferson and Madison and, and their, the Democratic Republicans, they're not interested in that. They're interested in, <laughs> yeah, they're the not interested in the nuances of it. They, right. are, they are interested in attacking, obviously, the, the Federalists and the Hamiltonian and Washingtonian approaches. One thing I want you to ask you about, we'll, we'll probably end up having like 30 seconds to talk about our second president, John Adams, <laughs> the, the way we're going here. But one of the things, you, you, you tell us that Washington's successor, John Adams, uh, his presidency began with a ceremonial blankness Mm -hmm. that would characterize his entire term. Can you just give us a a couple of of, uh, concrete examples of the ceremonial blankness of John Adams? I guess you're saying specifically in his inauguration, but really through his term as well. Yeah. John Adams was was not a comfortable politician. He wasn't a natural politician. I don't think he particularly understood the performative aspects of the presidency and the way that both Jefferson Jefferson did and and Monroe did. Um, and the other thing is Adams came in. Obviously, he had enormous shoes to fill. He's replacing the great George Washington. He um, he spent his entire term as president with his political opponent, Thomas Jefferson, serving as vice president. So he's got Jefferson nipping at him his entire four years. <laughs> he just he just never quite hit um, a style that worked. For for Adams to try to adopt these monarchical rituals that, that Washington had 
kind of worn very comfortably, he would have looked he would have looked foolish, um, and it wouldn't have worked. Um, whereas Washington you know, is tall and has this sort of stature and this reputation. Um, Adams would have looked it, it would have looked like a parody it wouldn't have looked natural and a lot of people already criticized Adams because he had been felt like the president needed a more elaborate title and they had nicknamed his nicknamed Adams his rotundity and <laughs> things like that he just didn't have the personality and the style to embrace that um, in the same way that Washington did and yet obviously that was where his political philosophy would have been to be more in that kind of monarchical style. It's like he just didn't have the personal grandeur and the legacy to carry that to, off. To carry that off. And I think he, he possessed his own kind of tone deafness in terms mm-hmm. of politics and then just had all sorts of problems during his presidency, the um, Alien and Sedition Acts. And he was popular at a couple of important points. And of course, they they took that popularity and passed the Alien and Sedition Acts, which basically made it uh, illegal to say any kind of anti a presidential speech in newspapers and also made it difficult for uh, uh, um, immigrants to come into this country and be naturalized and things like that. So what should have been his greatest moment, the Federalists actually passed policies that were very reactionary. So instead of – like Washington probably would have taken a tour or taken some kind of triumphal um, uh, progress or something. Adams and his his Congress say, well, we're going to finally clamp down on our opponents and we're going to make any kind of – anti-administration political speech illegal, and that was the Sedition Act. And the Democratic Republicans, it just played right in their hands. Oh, of course. Because all Jefferson and Madison would just, they just had, all they had to do was sit back and let it play out. All right. So. To our third president, you've already touched on the stark contrast that there is in sort of Jefferson's personality and his approach to sort of the public persona of the president. You've talked about, for instance, this uh, kind of breezy, seemingly spontaneous stroll which Jefferson takes from his uh, place he was living to to the inaugural site. In fact, you tell us that it probably was not nearly as spontaneous as it appeared and that, in fact, I mean, it, it, it was probably a very, very deliberate, careful decision on his part. Oh, absolutely. And he 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 kind of portrayed this air of being sort of above it all and sort of detached and just Republican simplicity. But absolutely, I mean, you had to have known exactly what you were reacting against to choreograph such a careful, um, to, 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 to sort of be the anti-ceremony guy, which is which is how he portrayed himself. You, you are, you know, ex- because if you saw him and if you heard his, this description of what he did, you knew exactly what he was reacting against. He was reacting against the tours and the processions and the speeches and all of that. So it, it's it's a very um, very intentional laid backness, I guess. Yeah, yeah, right. It's like a careful, <laughs> deliberate simplicity. Yeah. I mean, it almost seems contradictory. I also like how you characterize Jefferson, who was. Uh, in the administrations mm-hmm. of, of Washington and Adams, even though he was politically their opponent in so many ways, you call him in some respects a Trojan horse right. because there he is kind of in the heart of the action and, and in some respects already 
kind of laying the groundwork for what he would ultimately do as president. Absolutely. And he he's a very clever guy. I mean, it, it, uh, almost kind of like a trickster personality. And what he does is he's, he's Washington's secretary of state, which he eventually resigns because he and the, the and Washington are at odds. And then because we allowed our the, the second place finisher in the presidential contest to become vice president, he becomes Adams's vice president. So this would be like you have Barack Obama's president and John McCain as vice president. Mm. Um, and so you have your political opponent actually serving in your administration. And so it gave him kind of a front row seat to see exactly what his Federalist opponents were up to. And at the same time, what where Jefferson puts his energies is basically organizing a partisan opposition, but doing it all very secretively and um, letter writing and through surrogates and through newspapers, but very disguised and behind behind the scenes and then trying to build up kind of a, a grassroots net, network of party supporters. So again, where Washington and Adams would believe in sort of a top-down presidency, Jefferson believed in a, um, a Democratic a, a, a political movement that that came from the came from the base and then worked its way up. And I mean, b- both of these approaches fit perfectly their f- philosophies. Mm. I mean, they, it's almost frighteningly neat right. how, how well this how this how well this fits. And so what he does is spend basically twelve years from the time he leaves Washington's cabinet to the time he's actually elected, choreographing all of this kind of stuff behind the scenes. Mm. You you tell us about an interesting exchange between Washington and Jefferson, apparently a conversation, and Jefferson took notes about it, where they're discussing kind of their different philosophy about the government and how what Jefferson fears is a monarchy mm-hmm. and what Washington fears is anarchy. Absolutely. And Washington says, I think, such an interesting point, which is that there's no way Americans would ever really permit a monarchy. I mean, that's what they fought and died for in the Revolutionary War. I mean, they would find that abhorrent as much as they venerate Washington himself. Hardly anybody in this country really wants a monarchy. But so easily this could all slip into anarchy if we aren't careful to kind of foster uh, cast this government in a really cohesive kind of fashion. Absolutely. And it's interesting, too, because, and, and again, it's, it's the fundamentally different way that these two men see how government should work and how politics should work. Jefferson says what we should be fostering here is a free press. He says, you want you want a strong government, you want a strong, you know, uh, a system, have a strong free press. Let people be able to exchange ideas. And Washington says, no, no, no. I mean, he doesn't denounce a free press, but he says, no, we need to, we need to strengthen the government in and of itself. And Washington even writes or or says to Jefferson, if we truly had a monarchy here, you wouldn't find a person who would fight harder against it. You know, Mm. he said, and I don't, I don't see him than Washington Washington himself. And and he says, I don't see monarchy here. And you, you, I would be the first, I'd be on the front lines if (laughs) if we had that. And Jefferson, you know, you can just see the two of them. They're just, they're kind of almost talking past each other. It's so interesting. And and it just brings that political divide really to life, I think, in so, mm-hmm. in so many ways. Um, in a couple of minutes, tell us beyond the inauguration how, how Jefferson conducts his presidency in a way which embodies this sort of new vision of how the, the president should conduct himself. I mean, how, how, how was he different from, for instance, Washington in, through the course of his presidency in well, these matters? Well, what he does is he does have, uh, he hosts a lot of social events. Um, the White House is more uh, accessible. Um, 
but he, what he does is he hosts very small dinner parties. And, you know, Jefferson is, is a very comfortable, very social, very witty person. And so he would host these dinner parties for eight or ten um, congressmen and senators and things like that. And apparently these were, these were great parties, whereas people said that the, the social uh, cocktail parties that Washington hosted were just deadly. They were just dreadful. They were so stiff and formal. Mm. And so what you do, what you see is Jefferson's own personality comes out. Mm. He socializes, but he does it in his own terms. Um, probably the most famous or notorious example is the the British minister, a man named Anthony Mary, comes to present his credentials uh, to, to Jefferson, uh, Madison's secretary of state at the time. And so the two men, Mary and Madison, are wandering around the White House trying to find Jefferson. They finally find Jefferson in like a little study off the, off the side. Uh, he's wearing, um, he doesn't have his suit coat on. He's wearing bedroom slippers. He's got a dirty shirt on. <laughs> and he's just like, what you know and and um mary is just uh, horrified and and um you know and of course uh, jefferson's very pro french and mary is sort of thinking oh gosh you know what's going on here and Jefferson was supposed to have an appointment with this man, and here he is just wandering off, doing his own thing. There's another famous uh, story of they're, they're having the kind of the state dinner for Mary and his wife. And the, the tradition is that the, the, the president uh, escorts the, the ambassador's wife, the ambassador uh, escorts the, the, the first lady. In this case, it would have been Dolly Madison who was filling in as first lady. Um, Jefferson just grabs whoever he sees, the first lady sees, and just walks in with her, and then leaves everyone scrambling to. And Dolly Madison um, is is saying kind of under her breath, "Take Mrs. Mary, take Mrs. Mary," and Jefferson's like blithely going on and. And not then, following the script. Not following the script. And then Mary, Anthony Mary himself, has to go and scramble to find a seat because because <laughs> Jefferson has so disrupted the protocol, um, it just becomes the scramble. And you know, and obviously diplomatic events even today are very formal and very choreographed and and th- that kind of thing. And people people said at the time, this is going to cause a war. This 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 incident is going to cause a war. But again, for Jefferson, that was. That that was him, and that was how he felt the presidency should should uh, president should behave. You quote uh, someone named Samuel Harrison Smith uh, writing in the National Intelligencer in describing another gathering with President Jefferson that. Uh, uh, President Jefferson mingled promiscuously, meaning freely or without hint of distinction, with the citizens and far from designating any particular friends for consultation, conversed for a short time with everyone that came in his way. Right. Uh, it's so interesting to think about uh, what we take for granted now is happening in a certain way that, in fact, we would have these sharply contrasting uh, styles and fashions. And of course, that plays out so intriguingly from Washington through Adams through Mm -hmm. Jefferson. And of course, in your book, we can read on to Madison and uh, someone like Monroe, maybe trying to pull the the best of both possibilities. The book, again, is called Celebrating the Republic, Presidential Ceremony and Popular Sovereignty from Washington to Monroe. 
a really wonderful book uh, with uh, also interesting illustrations that show us some of these uh, scenes, particularly from the time of Washington and these amazing receptions where he was uh, received. In fact, maybe you could just say a quick word about an interesting contrast between two illustrations of essentially the same thing in the book that you say, you know, kind of prompts the question of what did these things really look like? Yeah, I, there's one etching, um, and it's it's of a kind of an archway or uh, that Jefferson uh, that Washington probably uh, passed through. And one just looks like something you, you made in your backyard out of kind of straw and hay. And then the other one is just this grandiose with flags and um, banners and all kinds of things and women kneeling and, and all of that. And again, the, the popular recreations of, of probably what these look like or didn't look like. The other funny thing is the cover of the book shows Washington. He's, about, he's coming through the New York City Harbor to go to his inauguration. And I've had people say to me, oh, is that Washington crossing the Delaware? And the fact that he's standing and waving his hat um, – should suggest maybe this isn't there was isn't a war going on right now. So and the secretive crossing of the Delaware would not have happened uh, quite so successfully or publicly. <laughs> right. Absolutely, there's so much to enjoy in this book, published by North Illinois University Press. And Dr. Sandra Motes, I have enjoyed this so much as I knew I would, and I look forward to our next visit on the morning show. Thank you, Greg. Good to have you here.